and welcome to another installment of the Emroid Digest podcast. I'm your host, Chuma Obineme, a gastroenterology fellow at Emory University Hospital. I also have my co-host with me, Dr. Jason Brown, the Grady Memorial Hospital Site Fellowship Director. So we had a really awesome conversation on gastrointestinal metaplasia that I'm really excited for you guys to hear. Um, I just wanted to let you guys know a couple things. One, if you have not already subscribed to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, please do so you don't miss an episode. And two, if you're not already following the Emory Gastrohepatology Twitter page, where you can get all the Emroid Digest visual abstracts as soon as they come out, please do. Um, a lot of the fellows in our program put a ton of work into making uh, these visual abstracts, and it really does give you a nice little overview of these really important guidelines. So with that, let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Emroid Digest podcast. I'm so glad you could join us today for this episode. Today, we are talking all things gastric intestinal metaplasia. And to do so, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Shelja Shah. So I'm going to give her a little introduction to the podcast for those who have not heard of her, perhaps. Um, so Dr. Shah is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, staff gastroenterologist at the VA in San Diego, and is part of the cancer control program at UCSD Moore's Cancer Center. Uh, she completed her internal medicine training at UCSF, followed by a fellowship and chief year at Mount Sinai in New York City, uh, as well as visiting clinical rotation in Tokyo, Japan, that was focused on gastric cancer screening and surveillance. Uh, she leads a multidisciplinary research program that aims to define non-genetic, genetic, and systems-level determinants of H. pylori treatment and disease-related clinical outcomes, including gastric cancer, uh, among high-risk populations such as U.S. veterans and non-white racial, ethnic, and immigrant groups. Uh, Dr. Shah's research and public policy initiatives promote gastric cancer prevention and early detection efforts, such as gastric cancer, gastric cancer screening, uh, pre-neoplasia surveillance among these high-risk groups. Uh, Dr. Shah has given several national and international talks related to H. pylori and gastrointestinal metaplasia. She has published nearly 100 articles and holds active funding from the VA, NIH, and AGA. Uh, most importantly for our podcast, uh, she was the co-lead of AGA's technical review on gastrointestinal metaplasia. Uh, Dr. Shah, uh, we are really, really happy to have you on our show. Thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be here and to and to really have this conversation. So thanks for the the opportunity and the invitation. We generally like to begin by just learning a little bit more about uh, the author and and the author's journey into medicine and specifically into GI, and then talk a little bit about sort of the role of, of mentoring and, and how you found mentors and, and how you interact with mentors and how that shaped your career. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really important question, especially for, for all the listeners. Um, 
I actually kind of fell into into GI um, throughout medical school um, and even up to the point of like ranking different programs. I actually thought that I wanted to do pediatric neurosurgery. Um, basically wanted to do um, anything but internal medicine because my older sister um, was <laughs> internal medicine and GI, um, but really it's it's apparently in our genes and I just couldn't avoid it um, and really was just loved everything about um, internal medicine, continuity of care, differential diagnosis, um, but really did love that procedural aspect and the opportunity to intervene um, and to do procedures. Um, so really just, you know, GI was, was the natural path and um, really just fell in love with the specialty. And I think we can, we can all agree that um, it's really the most fun group of, um, of people. And so that, that really kept me um, coming back for, for more. And, you know, in terms of um, mentorship, I've been, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of um, people in my corner supporting me and to really be excited um, about um, about the research and, and even just my interests. And it's interesting because I went to Mount Sinai um, for fellowship because I was very interested in inflammatory bowel disease and um, really, really wanted to be um, clinician educator um, pathway and focus on um, on clinical um, clinical medicine and really if you had asked me at that time, um, what was the one certainty? And my certainty was that I did not want to write grants. I did not want to write papers. I did not want to do any of that. Um, that I, I just really like loved, loved taking care of patients, which is still very much true. Um, and it really was in the second year of my um, fellowship um, at Mount Sinai. We have all second year fellows. We have to lead something called GI controversies, where we pick a topic, um, we lead a panel, um, of, um, of experts and, and we present cases and kind of go through, through the literature. And so it really put, forces you to do a deep dive into literature. And so I, you know, I didn't want to do an IBD topic since everybody does an IBD focused topic. And, um, so one of the things that was really frustrating to me was the diagnosis of gastric intestinal metaphysics mm. on pathology mm. reports. Yeah. And so I was sick of trying to like, look up what am I supposed to do with this? Um, like when it comes back on biopsies. And so it really was that exercise of going into the literature that I just became, you know, so fascinated by it and really learning how differently it's managed um, in other parts of the world. And especially just even thinking more broadly about gastric cancer screening and prevention um, efforts, which, um, you know, have have historically just been overlooked in the United States, um, even though there are high risk populations. And so I was fortunate that I had a lot of support within my, you know, within my division, um, and that really opened a lot of a lot of doors for me too. What would you say, you know, for for fellows, for junior faculty who are interested in getting more involved in research, but maybe don't have the infrastructure around them or can't readily identify a mentor? How do they develop those partnerships to get into position to to do this kind of disease altering course changing population level education work that that you're involved in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's also, um, you know, really, really important. And I think we're in a different, um, you know, especially with with COVID that that really has in terms of how we interact with each other that we've all been forced to go into this virtual environment. And that has allowed us to, um, to reach out to people outside of our institution and to have, you know, foster some of these um, these relationships. And so I would encourage anybody who is 
you know, even a little bit interested to really pursue those interests. Um, a lot of these are going to be, you know, potential dead ends, but I think that that's also very, very informative. Um, cause like I mentioned for me, it really did completely change my, um, you know, my, my clinical interests and put me on a research pathway because I was just so interested in the, the actual clinical questions. So I would, you know, if anyone is actually interested, I would encourage them to to reach out um, if they don't have the institutional resources to reach outside of their um, institution. But, you know, most institutions, I, I feel like there are some resources to at least get started, mm-hmm. um, but would definitely encourage people to just, to just reach out. I know some folks are intimidated. Um, you know, they may not feel that they have formal training, you know, MPHs or MSCRs or, or, or different types of advanced degrees. Do you feel like there's a special skill set that can be learned on the fly or learned from mentors or working groups? Is there specialization such that that's not necessarily a prerequisite? Or do you really need to come to the table with something from undergraduate or the graduate arena to get you started in this? Yeah, that, you know, to be honest, that was actually something that I I definitely struggled with, um, especially coming from a, a very heavy clinical um, program that I really didn't feel like I had the tools. And so that was definitely daunting um, to even start along this pathway. But again, I had people that were like, you know, in my corner, at least giving support, um, saying that, um, that I could do it. And, and that actually pushed me as, so I didn't get my MPH until I was a faculty member. Um, so got it relatively late. And, and I think everybody is going to be, it's, it's going to serve different purposes for different people. Um, for me, that MPH gave a little bit of a foundation, but honestly, I think it was just working with um, with other colleagues, surrounding yourself by, um, you know, by um, by smarter people than you, and learning and learning as you go. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that um, with that approach because you really will learn a lot just in the process. That's really insightful, and I think very humble of you to say. And I think that that's really impactful for a lot of folks who feel very intimidated or in the middle of their training process. Cause I think a lot of times, especially for those of us that go into medicine um, and procedural specialties, there's a sort of a type A element. I have to be good at everything. And this gets into speaking of clinician educating, you know, the role of mentorship and feedback where, you know, that's how you get better. But that that's a very nice insight that none of the other offers uh, authors have brought into this podcast. I appreciate your sharing that perspective. Sure. Uh, yeah, Chuma, before, like, critical, oh, like, yeah, it's a critical thing to be able to, especially with, um, you know, even once we dive into the guidelines and the technical review is really just saying, you know, we don't actually know the answer and um, and actually identifying that, that we just don't know um, and, and being okay with that. And then figuring out the path of like, okay, well, what are the elements that we need to, to get this answer? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that may be a great segue into the uh, the paper itself. Okay, um, that's actually one of the things I wanted to you know talk a little bit about is like this sort of relationship between the technical review and the guidelines themselves. We talked a little bit about it in the past, but um, I guess for some of our, our listeners who aren't familiar with um, the technical review versus the guidelines, like you know how, how are those two I guess like manuscripts kind of related to one another. Yeah, so that and um, that was something that I also learned in this process was um, even just the um, how the different societies go about developing their their guidelines. And so even though they might follow um, the same 
um, approach to grade the evidence according to um, grade methodology that then the actual structure and the way that the information is published um, might vary. And so with the AGA um, that they will publish the technical review, which is the um, systematic review meta-analysis, the entire synthesis of um, of the evidence and the data and, and goes, does that deeper dive, um, including, you know, and you can, you know, it was a definitely a deep dive for the intestinal metaplasia <laughs> literature um, to really pick apart a lot of these studies, um, because I think that is, is really important because we can, you know, we can regurgitate these risk estimates and say that the, um, you know, the evidence was, um, there was heterogeneity, but but it's really important if we're going to advance the needle, where was that heterogeneity? How did it actually impact how we can interpret these, these results? And how does it apply to, to the patient who's sitting in front of me? Um, so with the, the technical review, um, that that really is, is just the synthesis of the, of the evidence um, and um, you know, identifying what was the certainty of the evidence, um, risk of bias, those types of features, and providing that evidence that synthesis of the evidence to the guidelines panel. And then they are the ones who ultimately make the decision of what the recommendations will be. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so I want to, I'm going to kind of frame our, I guess, this podcast with a case. Uh, but before I get to the case, I feel like for some listeners who I guess are less uh, familiar with, you know, gastrointestinal metaplasia, can you, I guess, can you just tell us what it is and why clinicians should care about it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, even with my journey, that gastrointestinal metaplasia is really um, most often a source of frustration um, for people because they find it on, um, on biopsies that they might have taken incidentally or somebody who's undergoing workup for dyspepsia or another indication for them to have that upper endoscopy. But um, by definition, gastrointestinal metaplasia is um, it's a histologic um, diagnosis. And so it is the replacement of normal gastric mucosa, so either the oxyntic mucosa or the antral mucosa, um, by intestinal epithelium. And that is in response to some insult of chronic inflammation. Um, the most common insult is H. pylori infection. Um, but there's certainly other less common ones, such as um, like bile acid exposure, um, autoimmune gastritis um, as well, um, that it really is that response to, to chronic inflammation. And, and we see the, um, you know, the cousin of that in the esophagus, um, where we call it Barrett's esophagus. So mm -hmm. intestinal metaplasia forms in response to that insult, which is acid reflux, um, but in the stomach, different types of, of insults. Yeah, yeah, and then I, I, you know, the I guess the guidelines talk a little bit about this sort of pathway that that you know I guess we get concerned about because I guess the concern is always that maybe gastric intestinal metaplasia and it's being a potential precursor for you know gastric adenocarcinoma. Um, I guess can you walk us kind of through that pathway or or the proposed histopathologic pathway for that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And that, and, you know, and that's why, that's why we are concerned when we do get that diagnosis of gastric intestinal metaplasia, because it does, it, it acts as a surrogate marker of somebody who is at increased risk for, um, for the intestinal type of, of gastric adenocarcinoma. 
you know, there's there's debate um, amongst different groups of whether or not it is truly like the, the precursor lesion or if there's um, something similar to intestinal metaplasia. Um, but for all intents and purposes, it identifies somebody who is at increased risk for intestinal type gastric cancer. And that's the most common form of gastric cancer. Um, and that's the one that it has where H. pylori is um, directly causal in that pathway. Um, I will mention here that um, the kind of other type based on the Lorin classification, the Lorin histologic classification is diffuse type gastric cancer. Um, so that's the one that we classically talk about, um, linitis plastica. Um, that's the insignate ring cells, um, potentially CDH1 mutations, those associations. Um, there, there really is not an identified precursor lesion that we know of. Um, we do know that we can see intestinal metaplasia um, in those patients. But, you know, classically, when we talk about this cascade, which is known as the Correa cascade after the, the pathologist who, who first identified it um, and really described it and, um, you know, it's kind of the, the grandfather, um, that this, this stepwise cascade of these defined histopathologic um, changes leads to the intestinal type um, of gastric cancer. And so um, if we say we have our normal gastric mucosa, some insult, um, H. pylori again being the most common, um, causes gastritis. And in most people, that's gonna be a non-atrophic gastritis. Um, but in some individuals, it will be, it'll progress to atrophic gastritis, which is um, gastric atrophy just means loss of the normal um, gastric glands. And that can either be that loss of gastric glands can be replaced by um, either metaplastic tissue, most commonly intestinal metaplasia, um, or fibrous tissue, non-metaplastic um, atrophic gastritis. And so then some patients will have identifiable intestinal metaplasia. Um, a small percentage will then go on to develop dysplasia and an even smaller percentage will actually have malignant transformation to the intestinal type of gastric cancer. And so, you know, that stepwise progression of these defined stages um, allows us to, and it's a, it's a slow progression, so that allows us to potentially intervene and detect gastric cancer early, which is the whole point of surveillance, um, because we know that if we can detect gastric cancer before it invades into the submucosa, um, that those patients can actually be cured of gastric cancer if you catch it early enough. Um, so all those things point to, you know, potential benefit um, of identifying that high-risk population who could benefit from surveillance to detect these, um, these precancerous um, changes or early neoplasia um, at a curative stage. Yeah, that was... Uh... <laughs> Beautiful explanation of uh, of that progression. I think people are really going to appreciate that. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, the prevalence of gastric intestinal metaplasia, um, especially, I guess, as it pertains to, you know, I guess, Caucasian and non-Caucasian, you know, racial ethnic backgrounds. Um, maybe you could just tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah, and this is unfortunately complicated, <laughs> as are most things um, about this topic. Um, so you might hear that a few more times uh, yeah, throughout this yeah. podcast. Um, but from, so 
like I just mentioned with that progression that we know that H. pylori is, um, as far as we know right now, um, there's probably other factors that are, there's, there are other factors that are relevant, but for, um, you know, H. pylori is the most common known risk factor for intestinal metaplasia. And so we see that those populations who have higher prevalence of H. pylori are also going to have um, higher prevalence of, of intestinal metaplasia. Um, what complicates it when we talk about a United States population is, you know, we're a very diverse population. Um, people are immigrating from countries where H. pylori, gastric cancer are endemic. Um, and then even within um, our country, we have other higher risk um, populations. And um, race ethnicity is one way that identifies some of those higher risk populations, whether or not it is related to higher prevalence of H. pylori, but then other, certainly other factors as well. Whether or not there is some genetic predisposition to getting H. pylori and having complications of H. pylori remains to be, you know, teased out. Um, but at least we do know that there are higher rates of intestinal metaplasia in non-white um, minority populations and, and immigrant populations. The thing that makes it complicated is that the only way to um, reliably diagnose intestinal metaplasia is if somebody has an upper endoscopy with biopsies. So that's one issue, um, is that you're already identifying potentially this, you know, a, a population that has an indication for EGD. And then we know that not everybody gets biopsies um, when they do have an upper endoscopy. And then we know that intestinal metaplasia is patchy in the stomach. And so there's a lot of things that make it really difficult to, you know, to understand what the, what the prevalence of intestinal metaplasia is in the United States. Um, but at least the largest study that has looked at this in the U.S. Um, and is one that we um, used in the technical review when we were trying to, to figure out, you know, what is the potential prevalence um, in the U.S. when we're talking about intestinal metaplasia, um, that it was a pathology um, database that um, covered, I think, probably about like 46 or 47 of the, of the states in the U.S. And it looked at um, patients who were undergoing upper endoscopy and who had biopsies. Um, and of that population, again, that select population, and I think they included over 800,000 um, patients, um, that there, it was about 4.8%, 4.85%. But um, they didn't discriminate on whether or not these biopsies were from the antrum or the corpus. So we don't know how many of those just have, you know, focal intestinal metaplasia. Um, also, no real detailed information about demographics um, and also the indication for the, for the upper endoscopy. And so if you take that, and that was when we, in the technical review and then in, in the guidelines, when they cite, you know, a 5% prevalence of intestinal metaplasia in the U.S., that is the study with, you know, with that number of patients, that's going to be the one that influences all of your, all of your prevalence estimates. But then if you look at some of these smaller studies who, that have looked, um, you know, more in a more detailed way at race, ethnicity, and some of these higher risk populations, it really can be like up to 34, you know, mid 30% or so. Um, so it really does vary, it does vary, but there certainly are those high risk populations. And, and from the data that we do have, um, non-white populations, um, immigrants from endemic countries, people who smoke, um, family history of gastric cancer, um, people with pernicious anemia, um, and we do know that veterans also have higher, um, higher prevalence of intestinal methylation. Wow. Wow. 
Um, I guess we're so we're gonna get into a little bit more uh, in into some of these specifics. I think be the case, but um, I guess one thing I always wonder is like, are there particular countries that you know are just like, you know, you can't miss, or like you know when you see certain patients and they come from you know I guess certain countries. Are, are there particular ones that you're thinking about? Like, oh, I'm you know because this person's from Japan or, or X place. Like, I'm I'm very worried about increased risk of gastric cancer. I don't, Mm-hmm. Like, do you have a couple that you always kind of cycle through your your brain? Or? Yeah, and that's and that's a great question. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because it is something that um, that I do consider um, when I am evaluating a patient um, in the office. And like always in the back of my mind, I'm trying to risk stratify um, this person because you know, as I talked about, we don't do gastric cancer screening in the U.S. Even though there are certain countries that. These patients, if they were in their um, native country, they would be undergoing gastric cancer screening. And so it's, you know, taking into into consideration all of those those factors. And so, you know, to answer your questions, there there certainly are um, those countries that are much higher risk for, for stomach cancer. Um, some are a little bit lower because now with H. pylori eradication campaigns, gastric cancer screening programs, that those rates have decreased. Um, but I still do consider um, East Asian countries, um, Eastern European um, countries, uh, certain Latin America, Central America, um, that these countries are are higher risk. Okay, great. Okay, okay. Without further ado, we should get to the case, uh, and then um, okay, and then we'll just we'll just pop off questions from there. Okay, so. Uh, Miss Meta, okay, you're seeing her in clinic. So she is a 62-year-old female. Uh, she has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes. Uh, she presents to your clinic uh, due to epigastric abdominal pain. Okay, she says the pain is intermittent, uh, and but worse after meals. Uh, she denies weight loss, rectal bleeding, but does have some intermittent nausea, you know, and occasional vomiting. Uh, she undergoes EGD uh, and is noted to have mild gastritis within the antrum. Uh, because of this, the endoscopist uh, decides to take random biopsies according to the Sydney protocol, uh, which actually return positive for H. pylori, and a few are positive for gastric intestinal metaplasia. Um, pretty common scenario. Uh, I wonder, I guess this first thing back, are there because when you think about this case, are there particular questions you have for this patient or other questions about the case that you would, you know, want to answer before you move forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, like you mentioned, is a very common, you know, common scenario that um, that we do see. Um, so things that I would be, um, like I mentioned, I'm always trying to risk stratify um, patients. And I think that that should be, that should be a universal theme is, is trying to have some sort of pretest probability. We should Obviously, it goes without saying, um, perform high quality exams on, on everybody, but I think it is, it, there is value in, in having a pretest probability um, when, you do, when you do any, any exam. And so I would be curious, um, you know, looking at certain patient level factors, um, so like patient level factors, endoscopy related factors, and then histology related factors. Mm-hmm. And so like patient related factors, um, what's her... Um, racial, ethnic background. Um, we already know that she's higher age. Um, she's a woman, um, slightly lower risk um, than men when we talk about gastric cancer risk, but still um, still relevant. Um, and like I mentioned, her, her age. I'd be interested to know any family history, 
smoking history, um, dietary factors are, are relevant to consider and then kind of thinking forward to um, the educational aspect, patient education. So I, I always do ask, um, you know, just to get a general sense of the types of foods that, um, that people, are, people are eating. Um, then from the endoscopy, um, you had mentioned that there was um, gastritis. I'd like to know a little bit more, like, was there any nodularity? Um, were there um, other, you know, other, other features um, as well in terms of like the gastric rugae and, and certain things there? Um, and then from the histology, um, I'd be really interested to um, know a few things. Um, so also like the which biopsies were the ones that did show intestinal metaplasia? Um, was it the, the antrum? Was it the, the corpus? Um, were there other biopsies? Was there anything else noted on those biopsies, like the severity of atrophic gastritis? Um, and then like the histologic subtype, which isn't, isn't something that's commonly reported um, by pathologists routinely. Um, which is a is a whole other podcast in and of itself, um, but it does have it does have value. Um, but in my experience, you can you know you can call the pathologist and, and ask them and say, is it possible to to report out the um, the subtype because it does have it does have value. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a lot. I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer all those questions, uh, <laughs> but okay, I will say that she is not a smoker. Okay, she is Caucasian. Uh, they did not make many inquiries about her diet history, um, but she does have a a mother who reportedly had gastric cancer. Um, and the, um, unfortunately, the report you get is, is what you get. It just says gastritis, mild gastritis in the antrum. Uh, and then I had, uh, and before I get, I guess, other questions about the endoscopy stuff is, you know, in this case, you know, a lot of times, I guess when we do H. pylori biopsies, it usually, I don't know. I mean, I guess usually it goes into one jar. I'm curious, do, is your practice different? Do you, are you mostly separating if you were in this case, kind of doing this scope for what seems kind of like a, a functional dyspepsia um, kind of patient? Would it go in one jar? Do you separate or does it change based upon, you know, endoscopic findings or what's your approach in, in mm -hmm. these cases? Yeah, that's and that's a that's a great question. That that also is a is a million dollar question there because there's and practice is it's it's highly variable um, as we know. And in the U.S. Um, in the U.S. it's it's standard that the charges are based on the number of biopsy jars, and so that does influence our practice of you know how many are we separating in into different different jars. Um, because that can then roll down to the patient in terms of the cost that they're that they're subjected to. So I think that that is, you know, it's a very important consideration. Um, and so for for me, um, there I do I do separate my biopsies at least um, antrum and body. If it's a patient who I know has um, intestinal metaplasia is very high risk, then I do actually separate um, antrum and cesura and um, body, because the main um, the main thing you want to discriminate is 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 their involvement of the corpus, um, because that does give you quite a bit of that that will give you uh, an indication of their of their risk, as opposed to if somebody. Um, identifiably only has involvement of their antrum um, and not the body, but you you are able to adequately assess that. If you put all those biopsies into one jar, 
Um, it's very difficult for the pathologist. They can, um, it would require certain special um, stains that they can, they can do. Um, so like for pepsinogen potentially, but they're not going to do those. And so in somebody with, um, you know, atrophic gastritis that involves the corpus, um, it's, it is very difficult um, for a pathologist to say that that is actually from the corpus versus saying that it could be an antral biopsy. And that's why sometimes you'll see these biopsies read um, antralization um, of the corpus, because that's what atrophy is, is loss of those, of those normal glands. Um, so that's what makes it very difficult for the pathologist to, to discriminate, discriminate those. So for me, I'm still taking, um, it, even if I do combine like all my antrim and incisora into the same jar, I will still take biopsies from the lesser curvature, greater curvature incisora and just put those into the, into the same jar. Um, and then the, the corpus, then I'll take lesser curvature, greater curvature, but put them into the into the same jar. Um, but for me, I'm also doing a very careful examination. And um, even though they're random biopsies, then actually targeting them to areas that I think could potentially have um, intestinal metaplasia just based on the endoscopic um, visualization. Um, but at a minimum, separating antrum, antrum and body. Um, the other benefit there is that if you do take those biopsies according to Sydney protocol, even if you have them again in those in those um, separate jars, is that the sensitivity approach is 100% of you being able to identify H. pylori if H. pylori is there, um, and that's also because again H. pylori is is patchy throughout the stomach, and there's there's different things that that can influence that. Um, and in segments of intestinal metaplasia, you're um, sometimes not as likely to see H. pylori in those biopsies. Mm. Can, can you comment a little bit uh, more on white light versus narrowband imaging as a as sort of a standard either in this functionalist Pepsia patient or, or if you're, you know, suspecting catching glimpses in white light of intestinal metaplasia, how do you sort of select patients to do NBI on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me in my routine practice, I do actually do NBI on everybody because it doesn't add doesn't add any procedural time, and it really allows you then to also train your eyes um, as to then what you see, and then you'll know um, what the actual histology shows. Um, so that has really, um, you know, helped to to improve detection. But I think the you know the first thing is really making sure that you adequately clean the gastric mucosa. Um, so you can actually get a good, um, good visualization um, of that. And then, then I will do standard, um, like high definition white light exam, um, and then followed by by NBI, um, because there are certain there have been studies um, that do confirm that the use of NBI does increase um, the sensitivity as well as specificity for the detection of, of gastric intestinal metaplasia. Um, so I do use it routinely. Okay. And that's even if, wow. Okay. That's a, uh, that's, that's really helpful. Um, okay. All right. We're, this is a, uh, this is excellent. So, all right. In this case, we're, we're still going with the case here. All right. We, they put all the vibes in the same jar <laughs> and the pathologist is unclear, uh, you know, body versus antrum. Okay. So we're still sort of in the, I don't know, no man's land in that regard. I'm going to take a little segue here and just say, um, so in this case, uh, and this person has, you know, both, you know, gastric intestinal metaplasia and H. pylori positive, you know, 
I guess, what do the guidelines tell us about the importance of, you know, treating H. pylori in this case? And how does that modulate their sort of risk for developing um, gastric adenocarcinoma further down the line? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a, it's a very important, um, very, very important question. And um, from a management standpoint, um, I will tell you, though, that the evidence for doing this in a U.S. population, um, we don't have it. Um, from the technical review side, um, every all the studies that we identified, and this was, you know, the first recommendation, the first PICO question for, for the guideline, this was actually the only PICO question that actually had direct evidence um, to, to support it. Everything else was based on indirect evidence. Um, but at least for this question, um, there were randomized control trials that were identified um, and, and longitudinal observational cohorts, um, which is why it was the evidence supporting it um, was, was graded as moderate, which is you know, we usually don't don't see for our GI guidelines, um, but the but the um, the strong recommendation um, to to test for H. pylori in anybody diagnosed with gastrointestinal metaplasia and then confirm eradication. And so, what that was actually based on, um, and if you look at the the data that they used to support, is that they referred to you know in patients with or without gastrointestinal metaplasia. Um, because in a lot of the studies, it was actually difficult to tease out um, what was that subset. Like if we look just at that subset of patients with gastrointestinal metaplasia, if we treat H. pylori, um, confirm eradication, what is their subsequent risk of, um, of gastric cancer? We were able to do that for a few of the studies, um, but um, the majority, it was looking at patients with or without gastrointestinal mm-hmm. metaplasia. Um, but consistently, there was reduced risk of incident um, gastric cancer, um, as well as um, gastric cancer mortality. Um, with, with intestinal metaplasia, there's this thought of whether or not it's the point of, of no return, um, that once somebody has intestinal metaplasia, that even if you eradicate H. pylori, that they can still progress. Um, which we we know that they can still, even if you eradicate H. pylori in someone with intestinal metaplasia, they can still progress to gastric cancer. Um, the risk is reduced compared to if you don't eradicate H. pylori, which again underscores that importance of testing and confirming eradication. But that also um, is it supports the rationale for endoscopic surveillance because even though H. pylori is no longer in the picture for reasons that we still don't clearly understand, that person is still at an elevated risk of, of progression, so. Okay, um, well, all right, so, okay, now I feel like we need to clarify. Um, we will get back to the case, but I feel like maybe we should talk about, um, I guess, what the main risk factors are, that I guess, that are used to determine whether or not a, a, a patient needs to undergo, I guess, surveillance after they're found to have gastric intestinal metaplasia. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe we just we go there and then we'll, yeah. We'll, yeah, um, um, I know there's a lot of million dollar questions in this, in this whole conversation, but that was honestly um, doing the technical review. And, and this, is, this is, I feel like a common theme for all guidelines. We think that there's more data than there actually are. Um, yeah. And so, Part of the technical review, like with developing the PICO guidelines, was um, 
you know, for patients with intestinal metaplasia, is there a way to actually risk stratify those who are at higher risk um, and would benefit from surveillance versus those at lower risk who would benefit from surveillance or in all comers would surveillance um, be associated with with improved improved patient outcomes? Um, and even that discrimination of high risk versus low risk, that there was uncertainty there and it really was based on um, clinical, like clinical factors, clinical knowledge um, of some risk factors, things like the extent of intestinal metaplasia, the histologic subtype, family history, things that we would think of, smoking, diet, um, race and ethnicity, whether or not these factors were associated in patients with intestinal metaplasia, are they associated with increased risk of progression, um, as well as like persistent H. pylori, which we, you know, which we just discussed. And this was important to really figure out, figuring out um, who are those patients who are at highest likelihood of progressing. Um, because like we talked about earlier, that the prevalence is potentially 5% of the population, maybe even, maybe even more. Um, but if you're saying that, you know, 5%, that's a lot of people then that you could potentially be um, enrolling in surveillance, using resources for something that might actually not not progress. Um, and we didn't even mention that with intestinal metaplasia, based on cohort studies that we have, that there's still a, a good proportion, you know, 25, 20 to 25%, maybe up to 30% who actually might regress. Um, and mm. that, that definition also is a little bit fuzzy, but we at least know that they don't progress to um, dysplasia or even, or even cancer. Um, so that was that was a huge focus of the technical review was trying to figure out um, what are some of these risk factors that can reliably identify um, identify patients at, as higher risk. And so we came up dry um, with with a lot of that. And like I mentioned, there is no comparative studies. Um, and so we really relied on indirect evidence um, to inform to inform these questions. And so, some of the factors that we were at least able to say that there is a higher relative risk in patients who have these risk factors compared to somebody who doesn't um, for risk of incident um, cancer, then things like family history, um, incomplete versus complete type, um, extensive intestinal metaplasia, so involvement of the, of the corpus, um, a histologic um, staging system that we, um, that we can discuss, but um, the Olga Olgim um, scoring system, so a higher stage of that, was also consistently associated with higher risk of progression. Um, we didn't find um, we actually didn't find evidence that race or ethnicity were associated with a higher risk of progression. So even though um, these patients might be at um, higher likelihood of having intestinal metaplasia once it's diagnosed, um, race, ethnicity, you know, we don't have the evidence to say that certain patients will progress quicker than other patients um, just based on race and ethnicity alone. Um, so I think the takeaway point is really like we have a lot of work to do um, in terms of identifying who are those patients who are at increased risk um, and who really does, um, who, who really would benefit most from endoscopic surveillance um, of intestinal metaplasia. So. So a lot more questions I feel like came out of this technical review um, compared to um, you know questions that we answered. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind? So um, is it okay if I just 
just recap and just make sure we're all on the same page <clears throat> because some of that stuff's a little bit new. Um, so incomplete versus complete histopathology, uh, which I, th I think you were mentioning uh, before that it, as a fellow, I'm between four different uh, sites. It is rare, <clears throat> yes. very mm -hmm. rare that that is, um, you know, specifically read out by uh, the pathologist. I guess in there, my question is, is there, have there been any like uh, any strategies I guess you've employed to I don't know, increase the rate of like pathologists reading that out? Is it easy as just calling them or? Well, and, mm -hmm. and one quick question too. One thing that I've heard from our pathologists is that their guidelines, their textbook, their that how they read it out is sort of in flux. So, how coordinated is GI as a field with pathology and and doing joint right. studies uh, together mm -hmm. or, or or synchronizing how they're defining things? Yeah, and, and you just hit the nail um, right on the head with that because that that really has been something that we have not been able to to bridge is to get GI and pathology um, to to work together because in at least my conversations um, with with certain pathologists um, that they actually think that we don't think it's beneficial. Um, so it's really also for us to come to a coordinated um, consensus that yes, we do think that this this is is beneficial. Um, another one of the complicating things is that the studies that were looked at that were included in the technical review um, that generated this risk estimate that incomplete compared to complete is associated with higher risk of incident gastric cancer. Um, that all of those studies were from outside the United States and from, you know, from certain, certain groups. And so we don't really have, so we still have a limited evidence base, especially when we're talking about a U.S. population. Um, so I do think that there's, there's opportunity there. And it is, it's not like it's infeasible um, or unfeasible um, because incomplete versus complete, it can actually be determined based on H&E in most, in most cases, mm -hmm. in the vast majority of cases. So that also tells us that it is something that we can easily do. It doesn't add um, cost in terms of time. It's probably minimal, but it can really help to identify somebody who is, who is potentially higher risk um, of progression. But I'll put an asterisk there is that we also then, once we do get those that reporting out, then that will at least help develop a body of data that we can then analyze to say, you know, whether or not this is actually beneficial. But I think for right now, we just don't have, we don't have great evidence um, for that. And that's, that's and that also goes to why the remaining recommendations were all conditional recommendations and then very low quality of evidence that really if we get more data, um, we don't we don't know how it's going to influence, you know, what where where the recommendation is gonna go and that really speaks to the conditional recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that much to say, okay, so you mentioned so incomplete versus complete, uh, uh, diffuse versus limited gastrointestinal metaplasia, uh, family history of gastric cancer, presence of H. pylori, and I guess that's even People who just if you had H. pylori, even if it gets treated, it sounds like there is an increased risk for gastric adenocarcinoma moving forward. So these are patients that you're going to talk to about surveillance. 
Is, is that close. how? Or yeah, close. Okay. Well, they <laughs> will, uh, so H. pylori is the big risk factor for developing intestinal metaplasia. Um, but okay. even once you've taken H. pylori out of the picture, that person is still at increased risk just by having intestinal metaplasia that's still there. That That's why they're still at increased risk of, of cancer. Um, um, but the patients who are at even higher risk are the ones who um, aren't successfully eradicated, that they still have that ongoing inflammation and all the downstream consequences of that ongoing inflammation from, from H. pylori. So those are patients that are, that are much higher risk if they still have that ongoing insult. Okay. Okay. Then we had the uh, people who are from countries where uh, gastric cancer is essentially endemic. Uh, and then there was also this, this, I think it was the Olga, Olgam staging. Can you tell us, I guess, just a little bit more about that? Because I don't know if, I don't know if everyone's going to be familiar with that, uh, that, yeah. yeah, that classification. <laughs> And that's also another way to to make friends with our pathologists <laughs> here is to mention that that staging system. So that um, you know, it's a staging system that isn't used in the United States, but it so it stands for the operative link. Um, so Olga, O L G A, and then Olgim, O L G I M. Um, so operative link of gastritis assessment, um, and then gastric and or um, intestinal metaplasia um, assessment. So those um, those scores basically what it um, what it does is it incorporates the severity um, of of the atrophy. Both of those scores include atrophy, so the severity of it, um, as well as the extent. Um, so whether or not there's corpus antrum um, and tied in with that antrum is the incisura involvement. So you do need the Sydney biopsies to adequately get an Olga Olgim stage. Um, and there's four um, four stages. Zero means normal, um, and then one through four. Stage three and four are your highest risk, and so that has been consistently shown to be um, higher risk of progression compared to those zero ones. Um, there's some mixed data about the twos in terms of their risk, but generally we lump zero to two um, compared to three, four. So those systems are. Um, you know, we don't report them out. Um, U.S. pathologists don't don't use those systems, but in other countries outside the United States, that that is um, that is commonly commonly used. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, to be, I guess, clear. So, if the patient has any of these risk factors, um, I guess surveillance moving forward is it was a conditional recommendation which to say that it's not necessarily guaranteed that you should surveil, it's you should have a conversation with the patient. I feel like there's a lot of, um, in like the, uh, I guess the comment period for this guideline when it came out, I guess there was a lot of, I don't know, it's controversy in this area. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, can you, how do you talk to patients about this or, you know, do multiple mm -hmm. factors change your sort of stratification or tell us more about that? Yeah, and this was um, just like you said. This was a point of um, just a lot of a lot of feedback and and controversy. And really, the controversy stemmed around um, the fear that this would, um, you know, be taken as as an overall thing of don't survey people with intestinal metaplasia, which is so far from from what the what the intent was. But you know, as we discussed, the it's a these were conditional recommendations, very low quality of evidence because there just wasn't 
wasn't that strength of, of evidence to say whether or not surveillance versus no surveillance um, is beneficial in defining those high risk populations, um, especially when you're considering the potential prevalence of, of intestinal metaplasia um, and thinking about it from resource utilization standpoint, so all of those factors. Um, but I think a really important, because a lot of it does go come down to the wording um, of, that, of that phrase of recommending against the routine um, surveillance, um, because if you break it down, it's actually very similar to other international guidelines. Um, so the European guidelines, British society guidelines, um, that there, if you kind of break apart their recommendations for surveillance, they also um, they also identify those patients who are higher risk and might benefit from endoscopic um, surveillance. And one of their recommendations is also in patients who have um, confirmed gastric intestinal metaplasia that's limited to the antrum. So again, that limited gastric intestinal metaplasia um, with you know, without any evidence, so they've had biopsies of the corpus to at least reassure us that it's not extensive intestinal metaplasia. So if they're in that low risk category, they don't have any family history or other like persistent H. pylori or other risk factors. The European guidelines actually say that, um, yes, we know that they're potentially at increased risk of cancer, but that increased risk does not, um, you know, does not um, mean that that person should actually be surveyed routinely, which is essentially what the AGA guidelines is saying is don't don't perform. Um, they're recommending against routine surveillance in anybody, everybody who's diagnosed with intestinal metaplasia, but instead risk stratify them um, and have that conversation with patients to um, they recommend the approach of, of shared decision making um, to talk with the patients of you know, these are your additional risk factors for gastric or for developing gastric cancer. Um, this is the purpose of surveillance. Um, there may be a benefit. We just don't have the the evidence to say whether or not um, whether or not there there is going to be benefit from you and for you. And that also you know ties into that conditional recommendation that the majority of patients who feel like they are at elevated risk based on the factors that we. Um, educate them about that they'll they'll opt for surveillance. Um, but I think that was really the approach of the of the guidelines was to have that honest conversation with patients. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I guess in your conversations with patients, um, you know, if they start racking up multiple, like they have a history of gastric cancer, you know, they've got you got a great pathologist who says, you know, you've got incomplete histopathology and. Um, like, do you urge that patient a little bit more or, you know, do you sort of treat them all as like sort of an all or nothing? Like if you have one, you know, I'm going to sort of like, I, I, yeah, I, it seems like a kind of a nuanced conversation to have with, with patients. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it really is. Honestly, it really is. And I do take an individualized approach um, with with patients and I do look at um, look at all their potential risk factors, but then also, you know, what's their risk of of endoscopy. Um, if it's somebody who's like 85 years old is on oxygen, like you're the, the risk of endoscopy is, is a bit higher than our theoretical risk of, of maybe um, finding them. And I'll look to see, have they had prior, um, prior endoscopies? Have they had, um, do I know that they've had intestinal metaplasia now for like 15 years and, and they've been fine that that is 
we've had time tell us now that this person is probably lower risk of, of progression. So, so I really do take an individual approach, but also just understanding where the evidence is in terms of some of these, some of these risk factors. But I will always, um, you know, obviously make sure that they have been tested for H. pylori. And for me in my practice, um, which isn't, isn't in the guidelines and we, we put it as outside the scope because it really is outside the scope, but something that I do um, because of, as I mentioned, intestinal metaplasia might decrease the sensitivity of H. pylori in your biopsies is I'll do another modality. So I'll do like a breath test or stool test um, to check that person for, for H. pylori because it's at least something that we can do um, to reduce their risk. Wow, that's nice. That's a really nice, helpful, helpful tip. Um, okay, we have to finish the case here. <clears throat> we took a very long segue. Um, long detail. Okay, so uh, j just to go back, 62-year-old, sort of this functional dyspepsia, biopsy, H. pylori, positive, plus gastrointestinal metaplasia, all the tissue is in one bottle, so we don't know the distribution. All right, so... Um, you as the clinic, or basically she undergoes treatment for H. pylori, okay? It is successfully eradicated, okay? Um, <laughs> she, she also tells you she has a history of gastric cancer in her mother. Um, one, uh, I guess, are you bringing this patient back for mapping? And what time frame does this person need to come back? And and then we'll jump to, I guess, all the intricacies of gastric mapping, endoscopy stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is it's it's a great question, um, and it, and it, this this comes up very very often. Of you know, what is the value of that short term that short term endoscopy, and which um, and that was one of the questions because we knew that this comes up so often is that then you get these biopsies of intestinal metaplasia and. You know, sometimes patients then are like scheduled for an endoscopy then like four weeks later. Um, so really, like, what should we do? Should we wait a year? Is it okay to extend them out, or do we not have to do do anything? Um, and so the the guideline recommendation was again that conditional recommendation, very low quality of evidence, um, recommending against the routine, um, you know, routine short interval endoscopy in certain patients. Um, or in, you know, in, in all comers, but then had that comment of, you know, if this person is deemed to be potentially high risk and if there's value of um, better uh, risk stratification um, or other additional risk factors, then having that shared decision-making approach of whether or not to bring them back um, within a shorter, shorter time frame. Um, and I will say that this is actually still similar to the European guidelines, um, where they also said that if there is any concern um, that the initial exam, that there could have been something that was missed, then potentially bringing them back earlier is is reasonable. Um, similar concept, just different different ways of, of, of phrasing it. And so for me, if this is a patient who, um, you know, who I haven't done the endoscopy on and is coming to me and it's unclear what the quality of that initial exam was, um, then I might be more inclined um, to, to repeat the endoscopy. Like if I am concerned that something might have been, might have been missed, especially in the symptomatic patient, um, age 60 plus, family history of stomach cancer, intestinal metaplasia of we're not sure what the extent is, 
with a prior history of, you know, of H. pylori, which is now eradicated, which is great. And I'm very happy that it was, it was confirmed. Um, but again, some things are kind of still pointing, pointing to it versus if I was actually very confident with the exam, um, that appropriate time was spent inspecting the stomach, um, you know, taking a, taking a good look because these lesions are very subtle, um, for stomach cancer and, and there is a potential for missed lesions if, if we're not careful, um, with that. And unfortunately, we don't have quality metrics for upper endoscopies, which is, I think, a, a platform to stand on that we need those. Um, so again, if I have any concern, then, then I would have a low threshold, um, in this patient to, to repeat the endoscopy and really, for me, it's it's to identify um, potentially if there is missed neoplasia, um, but then also there is that benefit of um, a further risk stratification. Right, right. And when you say um, you're bringing them, I guess in a shorter interval, is that you're just saying less than a year? Is that what you're saying, or? Yeah, typically like less than less than a year, and I'll have that conversation um, with patients as well, and say, you know, this is potentially what I'm what I'm concerned about. Um, and again, if it's safe, if they have no contraindications for for endoscopy, um, there's no urgency. It's not like they need to come back within like that that month, um, unless mm-hmm. there is something um, like unexplained weight loss or you know new anemia, any of those factors. Um, but I will I'll I'll bring them back within a shorter you know shorter interval. Okay. And then um, I feel like we talked, we did talk a lot about endoscopy already, but I guess on this, um, maybe we can talk about these two different scenarios. One, I guess when you bring them back for gastric mapping, and then when you bring them back, assuming you're going to do surveillance, um, I guess we already talked about doing really good white light exam, doing, you know, NBIing, and then specifically looking for abnormalities in the mucosa. Uh, I, I guess it you tell me, I guess, are there other, like, you know, when you're doing mapping, I'm assuming, I guess, tell us how you're, where you're biopsying and then, you know, what the different jars are, just so we, same page. Same page, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, it is good to, um, to clarify, to clarify the, um, the process. And, and like I mentioned, there are considerations with, um, with costs. So if um, the cost of pathology jars is potentially an issue, um, then still taking all the same samples that you would, but you can combine those into Antrim and Cisora, um, take all the same ones from the corpus and just put them in one jar labeled corpus. And I have, and I have done that um, just from for cost, like a cost standpoint, because that will give you at least limited versus extensive. Mm-hmm. And you'll be able to, the pathologist will tell you, you know, gastric intestinal metaplasia in two of four biopsies in the corpus or in four or four biopsies from the corpus. So they, they'll still report out those individual biopsy results. And that gives you, you know, gives you a good idea. Um, but really that important thing is, is the, is the body of the stomach um, involved or is it just limited to the, um, to the antrum? And so for me from, for like Sydney protocol biopsies. So I'll take, um, after I've done my very careful exam, cause as soon as you know, as soon as you start taking biopsies, it becomes, there's, there's blood, you can't do MBI. Um, so I'll always do my, you know, MBI exam um, beforehand. And then I'll take two biopsies from the lesser curvature and greater curvature um, of the antrum, about two to three centimeters from the pylorus. Um, then I'll take from the incisora angularis. That's an area that you do not want to miss because that has um, um, that's that's very often where intestinal metaplasia, H. pylori, um, in that area. 
Um, and then for the corpus, then I'll take again, lesser curvature um, and um, greater curvature biopsies from there. Excellent, excellent. And then does that, let's say, you know, when you're doing, let's, let's say I guess you do gastric mapping and then when you're bringing a backward surveillance, but like three years later, are you following that exact same, you know, protocol or like, is, is it change at all? And those subsequent endoscopies? Yeah. So it's, for me, it's the same, um, same protocol that I'm, um, like I will routinely, um, pretty much wash. I use the methicone, um, get rid of the bubbles, um, all insufflate, and then I'll just hang out there for a little bit and really inspecting like the, the gastric folds, um, following them down, um, making sure that there isn't any, um, any hidden lesion. And then I'll do, um, careful exam with high definition white light endoscopy. Um, then repeating it with with NBI. Um, on some of our newer scopes, we do have the near focus um, function. And so in those patients where I do see something on NBI, um, that is a very, very convenient um, feature. And, and I like it a lot. Because um, one thing that I failed to mention is that in, in other countries um, that they do have magnifying um, magnifying endoscopy. And so that is why in other countries, they, they don't necessarily routinely biopsy to confirm the diagnosis of intestinal metaplasia, um, just because they're so used to seeing it in their training programs, um, that that is something that they are trained on is to identify intestinal metaplasia, identify um, atrophic gastritis. And so, um, and, and they have magnifying um, endoscopy, but studies have shown that near focus and NVI can actually get pretty close in terms of performance to magnifying um, endoscopy. So, wow. okay. Um, and then uh, this is a, a couple off the question, off the cuff questions here. Um, are there any like endoscopic grading classifications for gastric intestinal metaplasia, or is that not? Are we not there yet? Um, it's, it's a great question. So there is for, um, for atrophic gastritis, um, great. that there is an endoscopic, um, grading system that isn't used in the, in the United States. Um, surprise, surprise, but it is, um, one of the, it's, um, it's a system that is, is, um, it's called the Kimura and Takamoto system. And so basically it's describing the border of atrophic gastritis. Um, because we know that with H. pylori associated atrophic gastritis, that it starts in the antrum and then progresses like up the lesser curvature to involve the involve the corpus. And so, you know, describing that extent of involvement endoscopically um, by describing it either as open means that there's corpus um, involvement, closed means that it's limited more so to the antrum um, with different you know different levels within within that. Um, but that has been correlated to um, that Olga Olgim staging system that I referred to, but then also somebody's risk of of stomach cancer. Um, so that that's an endoscopic scoring system that has been used. Um, but we are pretty far behind um, in the U.S. in terms of um, these scoring systems, and I think that that is that's a huge opportunity for us to really incorporate that into our training programs um, and and really to you know, to, to teach, um, teach endoscopists, because a lot of these things can be seen endoscopically. 
Okay, this has been an awesome discussion. <laughs> um, I have I have one one more question. I don't know, <laughs> Jason, if you have any more, but I just have one more because you had mentioned this idea of, um, I guess, regression of gastric intestinal metaplasia. So, which made me think, um, one, what is that, and then two, uh, like, is there, you know, if like, how do you? And I guess in a patient you've been surveilling for, I don't know, like <clears throat> 10 years or something that, you know, I guess, do you think about the if they have persistent gastric intestinal metaplasia versus like, you know, you, you biopsy maybe for two surveillances and then the next two don't have any? I mean, is like, is that regret or like, how do you, are you also going into like some risk stratification thing there? Like, how are you thinking about those? Yeah, and that's and that's a really, really great question. And something that we do kind of struggle with because the studies that have described regression are these observational cohort studies where you don't necessarily, where they're analyzing patients kind of, um, you know, in this, in this cohort and following them forward. So like what percent um, still had intestinal metaplasia on their subsequent endoscopy, you know, like three years later or some other time point later, and then describing regression based on that. Um, so that's one point. Other point is that there's um, that potential for sampling error as well, since intestinal metaplasia can be patchy. And so if you're just biopsying in a different area um, that might not have intestinal metaplasia, then you could potentially could potentially miss it. Um, is another point. And then the other thing is that regression. Um, so, and this was a this was a point that came up in the technical review and when we were kind of agreeing on what our definitions would be is that a lot of studies go based on a quantitative score. So they'll have a some numeric score um, and there's other different types of, of numeric scores that are that are out there um, that are used more so for research. And so regression could have actually just been a decrease in that numeric score. Um, for us, when we did the technical review, um, that we called it as regression only if it decreased to a lesser like global histology. So if it went from intestinal metaplasia to atrophic gastritis or intestinal metaplasia to like normal, normal mucosa. And so that has actually been described in some of these observational cohorts. But I think that there's still still some questions there as to what regression, what regression does mean. But it is. Um, you know, from some of the experimental studies that that are out there, it does seem like it is it is something that that occurs. Um, but from a clinical standpoint, it's it's a bit tough to to really nail down. Yeah, yeah. All right, um, we we have taken up way too much of your time, um, Dr. Shah. This has been an awesome discussion about gastric intestinal metaplasia. Uh, yeah, this has been amazing. I don't know. Uh, I just feel like should I ask for closing thoughts or yeah? This... Yeah, no, I really enjoyed um, having the discussion with you, and I think um, I, I think it's probably apparent why, as a second year fellow, then when I started looking into this topic, I was like, wow, there's just like so many more questions that are that are out there. Um, yeah. And so I think that's unfortunately, you know, from the time that I was a second year fellow to to now, it's still the still the case. But um, but I will say that I'm, I am glad, though, that this um, guideline did elicit some of that controversy from the community, because, you know, as they say, um, 
no presses, you know, any press is good press. Um, so right, it, right. it at least um, it at least raises the awareness that there's so many questions that we do we do need to to answer. Um, but really, that that ultimate goal should be um, early detection and prevention of gastric cancer um, because there there are very high risk um, populations, and we know that the incidence of gastric cancer in certain populations most certainly exceeds esophageal cancer. Um, but in some populations, even higher than than colorectal cancer. So we we really do have work to do. Yeah. That's perfect. Thank so, you so much for your time and, and your, you. your you know, effort writing this with the team and your guidance here today. This is uh, an evolving area and I think something that all interests us. So it's very clinically applicable. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity. And and I'll say to you know the listeners if there are any any questions or if anybody wants to wants to reach out, I'm really happy to happy to continue that discussion. Yes, that's true. Uh, I believe I, you are on. I'm on Twitter, but I'm pretty sure you are on Twitter as well. I'm on Twitter in name, <laughs> but I'm super active, which I, I need to get better at. But um, but yes, but you can find me there. Um, I what is my handle? I think it's at Sheldershaw MD. Is Boom. that's my best Love guess. It. So nice. <laughs> Love it. Well, either way. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna boost you up. Um, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing. Not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to seek competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily say or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast and specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.